This is Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Therese Boudreau. With me today is Lawrence M. Mead, professor of politics at New York University and the author of Burdens of Freedom, Cultural Difference, and American Power. He is also the host of the Poverty and Culture podcast. Today we'll discuss his article, The Real Afghan Tragedy, which you can find online at The American Spectator. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. So in your article, The Real Afghan Tragedy, you mentioned that the real disaster is not that the United States was defeated, but that the Afghanistan government collapsed into a failed state. Now, obviously, the sudden and awfully executed pullout was one definite cause in this case. But why do you think there are so many failed states in the non-West right now? I think the, um, the general cause is that it's better to f- talk first about the Western world. That is, the U.S. is part of a number of countries, mostly in Europe and, and a few others like ourselves, that are offshoots of Europe. In these societies, for mysterious reasons, the culture has a strong civic dimension. And most people honor the rule of law. They are willing to pay taxes. They support government when it behaves well, even though they also hold it accountable through elections and political freedoms of various kinds. So the government is supported by the public, and that gives it the authority to govern. But that kind of culture has not arisen, with a couple of exceptions, has not arisen in the non-Western world. Uh, Perhaps 15% of humanity lives within the West and therefore enjoys relatively good government. But in the non-West, the political cultures are much weaker, and we don't have the moralism that you find in the West, where we have rigid attitudes about right and wrong that tend to support civic values like obeying the law and paying taxes and so on. Um, In these other countries, which is most of the world, the political attitudes are more limited. Most people feel some obligation to their immediate village, to their region, to their tribe, uh, but they don't have a general commitment to the regime or to the law in a, in a broader sense. So there is a moral structure, but it's not of a kind that is very supportive of government in a modern sense. That is, uh, where you have a state with public services, and you have a military, and you have a tax system, and you have some kind of political system whereby the society expresses views about government. See, that's what we associate with democracy, but the more important uh, feature isn't really democracy, but rather the civic culture that supports government in general. And that's what we don't see really almost anywhere in the non-Western world. Afghanistan was an extreme example of that. Afghanistan is a country where there really has never been a credible central government. Most of authority, to the extent it exists at all, is on a regional basis where you have warlords and chieftains who govern certain areas, but which there is no overall commitment to the central government in Kabul. So it it was this regime that proved unable to stand up against the Taliban. What do you think are some specific ways, then, that more passive um, Eastern societies can adopt a more um, individualistic uh, culture? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's the great question, which we usually don't ask. Uh, America has a history of trying to promote democracy overseas, and we've generally failed because we don't appreciate that democracy or good government in general 
has cultural preconditions, that there has to be a culture with uh, a strong commitment to these civic values. And unless you have that, the regime will not really be able to govern its country. And the territory, although it may officially be assigned to Afghanistan, is really not under anyone's control. That's what we typically find in much of the non-West. Again, Afghanistan is an extreme case. Not every country is as chaotic as that. But uh, most of the non-Western world has weak government where the regime is headed by people that are not really accountable to the society. And, but conversely, these people don't really control very much. They typically control the capital city, and they really can't. Uh, their writ does not run, as they say, in the broader territory that is theoretically part of the country. So that is the real problem, and that's why these governments are are collapsing. It's a problem for the United States because what that does is generate large flows of immigration. There are people trying to get to the Western world in order to escape the chaos of their home societies. So you have massive pressure of immigration on Europe and also on, on America. And that makes it very hard for us to know what to do. We are obviously distressed by what happens when these countries fall apart. But on the other hand, we simply can't tolerate the large numbers of, of immigrants who want to come to America and other other Western countries, that is simply impractical. We can't do that. We have to find some other way to respond. Do you think that the Western world then should um, never try to influence the Eastern world at all? Do you think cultural moralism is something that needs to start within the countries themselves? I, I don't think that we can directly promote it. I think the people in the country have to become more moralistic about government values. Uh, For example, in India, which is a democracy, but has a a very corrupt government by Western standards, there have been movements in India, popular movements against corruption. And there are uh, various organizations that hold demonstrations and put pressure on the uh, politicians to be more honest. See, that is the sort of thing you need in order to produce a civic culture. And I think over time, there's some chance that India will become a a more, a stronger civic culture, and that will allow the government to perform better. Uh, And the same is true for Mexico. Mexico is a country which today seems quite corrupt. Uh, It's weak. Uh, The drug gangs in Mexico are more powerful than the government. Uh, however, uh, that hasn't always been true. In the past, uh, Mexico had a somewhat strong regime in the earlier 20th century, uh, and it could, in fact, move in that direction again. So the game isn't over, and these countries do have some some potential to improve. However, Americans don't really understand this because we never had to go through this. I mean, the great fact about the United States politically isn't really that we had a revolution against Great Britain, although we did, but rather that the British gave us our institutions on a plate, and we never had to develop them. The British, at the time they founded the United States in the 17th and 18th century, was easily the best ruled country in the world. Uh, The British have enormous political gifts, and they managed to achieve a regime that was strong and at the same time accountable to the society, also based on law, Uh, These features, they developed deep in the Middle Ages, and by the time they developed an empire and founded America, they were able to export those institutions to all of their territories. So if if you look at the best governed countries in the world today, 
they, they're pretty much all English-speaking. There's Britain itself, and then there's Canada, the United States, there's Australia, there's New Zealand. Uh, to a certain extent, there's South Africa, although that's a more complicated situation. And these are all countries that are well-governed by world standards because they inherited their institutions from the British. So we think it's easy. We don't appreciate how difficult it is to have a strong government. So if that's the case, um, if these countries need to develop it themselves, do you think that they need to not eradicate but reduce crime rates like the drug cartels, as you were saying, uh, the poverty rates? Well, that's what they should do, but it's easier said than done. Uh, I mean, a a couple of maybe 10 years ago, the president of Mexico at the time, I can't remember his name, decided to make war on the drug gangs. And he mobilized the army as well as the police, and they had what amounted to a civil war in Mexico for several years. And the truth is, he failed. The, uh, The drug gangs resisted, and the public did not greatly support the government, and corruption remained high. And in the end, uh, they had to call it off. So the role of organized crime in Mexico remain, remains very great, even to today. Now, see, that's very different from the United States. Now, we do have some corruption. We also have gangs in some of our cities. But the gangs are much more modest than anything that they have in Mexico. They're not able to challenge the government, and they never really, ne- never really have. Uh, so our police absolutely control the territory. There's nobody else who can say they're running a big city in America except the designated authorities. And that's true across the whole country. And Americans don't understand a situation where there's chaos, where government is not in charge. Uh, and you may dispute about what government should do. I'm not saying there's agreement about politics, far from it. But everybody assumes that the government at least in, is in charge of the territory and is able to govern in a more or less coherent manner. And then we dispute what it ought to do. But we take absolutely for granted that it has authority to govern. And we don't understand how rare that is and how fortunate we are. This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Therese Boudreaux, and I'm interviewing Lawrence M. Mead. Today we are discussing his article, The Real Afghan Tragedy, which you can find online at The American Spectator. So these states that have already failed, for instance, uh, Afghanistan, then would you say yeah. that their best way out of it, I suppose, um, is to try to imitate, um, you know, like what you're just describing, the success yeah. of police in America and in other Western countries? Uh, I'm not sure. That, that's, a, that's a difficult question. Uh, one of my teachers, one of the few professors that I had in school who was aware of these problems was Sam Huntington, who was a, someone I studied under at Harvard. And Sam wrote a book, really a very important book, on how to strengthen government in weak countries, the very problem we're talking about. And his own view, which I think I would tend to share, is that the best way of strengthening the regime is to have a governing party where the political leaders are part of a larger organization which has an agenda that they support and which attempts to move the country towards reform and improvement in various ways through government. Uh, And that happened in in Mexico, for example, in the 20s and 30s, when there had been a revolution in 1910, which threw out the old regime, which had been a military regime pretty much, and replaced it with a regime of a party, which essentially ran the country for the next more or less 50 years. And 
eventually deteriorated and became uh, more corrupt. And then there was uh, a reform movement in which another party was founded. And now in Mexico, there are three parties that are contesting for power. And they're all uh, promoting programs to the electorate, just like they do in the United States. So Mexico has clearly improved governmental quality over the last century, no question about it. But it took a long time to improve it. And even today, the levels of corruption and gang control are much, much, much greater than you would see in the United States. So there is, there is, there are ways to improve. The other thing, the other thing that has happened, there have been a few cases of strong leaders who took power and then reformed the government sort of from the top down. I can think of two good examples in Turkey uh, after World War One. Uh, a military a figure named uh, Kemal Ataturk uh, took power and ruled for something like 10 years and essentially tried to turn Turkey into a modern country and strengthen the institutions in various ways. Um, it's that regime which is now coming under pressure from the current president, um, which is therefore at some risk. But there's no question that Turkey improved in that period. And the other example is... Uh, the uh, president, longtime president of Singapore in Asia, um, his name was Lee Kuan Yew, and uh, he took power, I think, elected. He was elected, but the government was not notably corrupt or efficient, or rather, it was not honest or efficient in any notable way uh, before he took power. And through various reforms and changing the law and enforcing uh, good behavior on, on public officials and a lot of other things, Lee Kuan Yew basically transformed Singapore into a well-run, essentially honest society. When you go there today, it feels kind of like Bermuda, which is a, a still formerly a British colony, very well governed. Uh, Singapore is very well governed. But that wasn't true 20, 30 years ago. So there are cases where leaders have come in and been able to improve things. But ultimately, those reforms depend upon developing a civic culture in the general public, such that people obey the rules and, and give up on corruption and don't try to get around the rules. That's what you have to have in order to maintain progress. So is there any part of the Eastern political philosophy or culture that is compatible with democracy or individualism? Or is it base, basically are those two just will be naturally incompatible. Yeah. I don't think that what I'm saying necessarily implies there's going to be democracy. See, democracy assumes that you already have, uh, first of all, the rule of law. You have to have a government with enough authority to control its own territory. That's the first thing. And then after that, you have to have trust between the government and the society such that neither side takes advantage of the other. That is, the, the public, the government is supposed to rule according to law and, and not abuse its power. And similar, similarly, the public has to obey the laws and avoid corruption. And when you have trust between government and society, then it's feasible to have elections. And really not before that. Uh, it takes uh, some time to develop these relationships of trust. And in the European cases where democracy has been in, in effect for the longest, uh, in the British case, you have essentially a good government with founded on law and with uh, government uh, 
accountability to the society. You have that. Even in the Middle Ages, they had that a long time ago and long before they had explicit democracy. In fact, the British Mm -hmm. government didn't become fully democratic until the 20th century. They never thought that was important because the society definitely had control of the regime and the elections in Britain then and now involve radical vulnerability to the society. Uh, all, basically, all power is at stake in a British election, and much more so than in America, where the Madisonian Constitution fragments power, and no one election has total capacity to turn the regime over in a new direction. You can't really do that. In Britain, you can. Parliament is governed by who wins the election, and that affects who the government is and what it does. And so in Britain, you have so much trust between the government and society that the regime is willing to put itself at risk of public approval and disapproval. And that's quite unusual. The British example is they are, that is probably the most strongly institutionalized regime the world has ever seen. And, and, and that is not easy. You don't get there overnight. In the, in the American case, uh, we've been through a number of struggles over the last 200-odd years, like the Civil War and the Great Depression. There have been a number of crises, but the veterans for the Constitution has been strong enough so that we have never really seen, except in the Civil War, we have never really seen a breach of fidelity to the basic institutions. We have not seen that. And that's why American uh, government is possible and why it's effective, because it has that kind of authority. And again, it's not about what the government should do. That's another issue. That's a different issue. But we accept that the institutions are basically obeying the rules of the Constitution. Now, recently there have been disputes uh, led by former President Trump contesting about whether the last election was correct and so on. Well, that doesn't worry me very much. The public refuses to accept the notion that the election was stolen. And there, there never was any official anywhere anywhere that I've heard of anyway, who was prepared to, to question the, uh, the, the verdict of the election in his own state or locality. That never happened. Uh, the people who were watching the polls were sworn to obey the law, and they did so. And that's all there is to it. And, and that, that kind of trust is the key to American government. Really, is that is just fundamental. And that's what you don't see in Afghanistan. You simply never had that. All that considered then, Um, What do you think individual citizens in these cultures, instead of, you know, emigrating to America, can do within their own countries? Yeah. I I don't think they have an easy road. I think what one would hope they would do is, first of all, be honest in their own behavior and not engage in corruption or attempts to pay off people or, or get around the system, which is routine in most of these countries. Give all that up and then join a party or a movement dedicated to governmental improvement. And uh, be, of course, enter into elections and have a program and try to get elected and all that. But the, the party I'm talking about should be one that's dedicated to good government. Uh, and that has to be the first goal, the thing that people are committed to. And in doing that, you, you have to take some risks. I mean, in the governments we're talking about, the government is usually so weak that it can't hold on to power without abusing the liberties of the people. Uh, The very idea of having political freedoms, of having free speech and a a free press and all that, all of that is possible only if the regime has a certain authority. And if it doesn't, 
rulers tend to compromise those rights, because otherwise they can't hold power. But of course, if they do that, they're weakening the regime. So I don't see any solution here. There has to be a regime strong enough to govern, but that means you probably can't have the full panoply of rights that we take for granted in in the United States, because we can do that only because our regime is so strongly institutionalized and goes back so, so far into history. That isn't true. Many of these governments that we're talking about today have really only existed for a few decades. Uh, many of them are former colonies that were freed up by European empires and are now trying to govern themselves. And they have a long way to go to get to where we are. All right. Well, thank you so much again for joining us, sir. Our guest has been Lawrence M. Mead, professor of politics at New York University and the author of Burdens of Freedom, Cultural Difference in American Power. He is also the host of the Poverty and Culture podcast. You can find his article, The Real Afghan Tragedy, online at The American Spectator. And I'm Therese Boudreau on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. <laughs>